morning, church. Scripture reading for today is from Romans chapter 3, verse 19 to 26. This is God's word. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning. Yeah, it's going to be that kind of day today. <laughs> wow, some of you thought I was faking. Yeah, um, I feel a lot better than I sound. So don't worry about me. I'm alive. I'm going to be okay. But for us, perhaps for some of you, you feel like the way I sound. So regardless of how you feel, I, I hope that the gospel message will be an encouragement to you all. Uh, before we go into the preaching of God's Word this morning, I wanted to introduce uh, some of the guests who, are, who have joined us. Um, by the reaction, for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, this is not my real voice. <laughs> so if you're, if you're shocked, uh, this is not what I sound like normally. But we have uh, Jay, who is visiting us today for the first time. If you could just raise your hand so we can recognize you. Sitting in the back to, to my left, let's welcome Jay together. Thanks for joining us today. And we have Sharon also joining us. If you could just, Sharon, raise your hand. So we, ah, all the way in the back to my left. Thanks for joining us this morning. All right. Well, we're here in Romans chapter 3. And <clears throat> a lot of people don't really know exactly why Paul wrote the book of Romans. But based on the content, a lot of the scholars really feel like there were two reasons why Paul may have written this letter to the Christians in Rome. Uh, he's actually writing to Christians that he has not yet met, but he's hoping to meet through his travels after he stops by Jerusalem and then he makes his way onto Spain. And, and so through the content, we, we kind of can gauge of why he may have written this. And, and first is that this is a, a long support letter for his missionary journey. He's, he's preaching the gospel to places that have not heard the gospel, and he knows that he's going to need a lot of help. To, to collect funds so that it, it can supply him to travel in different ships and, and, and other means of travel, as well as to support the, the saints who are poor, fellow Christians in different regions who are poor. So he presents a theological treatise to validate his apostleship, giving the Christians the assurance of his mission of making the gospel of Jesus Christ known to the Gentiles, the, the people who are not of Jewish descent. Another reason why he may have written this letter is because during, historically speaking, during the time when Paul wrote this letter, um, there were certain divisions that were occurring in the church. 
there were a lot of Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, so Jewish Christians, and, and they were in a church with Gentile Christians worshiping together with a higher population of Jewish Christians over Gentile Christians. But when Emperor Claudius came into power, he kicked out all the Jews of Rome. And, and when he died, a lot of these Jewish Christians started coming back. And that's when they realized the church is not what it used to be. It's, it's mostly of Gentile Christians. So things have, various, uh, things have varied, and it's very different from what they used to. So tensions have risen, and, and things are clashing. So Paul wrote so much theology in this letter to help all the members of the Church of Christ, regardless of, what the, of their Jewish descent or Gentile descent, to see that we all belong to Jesus if they have faith in Jesus and not rely upon themselves or the, the obedience to the laws or the traditions that they've held in the past. So join with me as we go into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your continual grace. And we thank you that the gospel goes forth through weak vessels such as myself. And though I may appear weak and in, in, in my voice this morning, may the gospel of Christ continue to be proclaimed with much power and strength. May we look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as our hope in life and death and find in you all the reasons to rejoice in all circumstances. And so bless us this morning. Give us understanding and clarity in our minds and hearts and, and, and the willingness to obey you uh, to be the light unto the nations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start off the sermon this morning by showing you a painting by John uh, Everett Millet. It's called The Huguenot. This was a painting that he had painted and presented in 1852 after watching a play called The Huguenots. Uh, it's, a, it's a painting of two lovers. As you can see, they're, they're, they look like they're affectionately and, and madly in love with one another. But in this painting, the woman here is attempting to wrap a white cloth around her man's arm while the man looking at his love with so much affection is preventing her from putting it on him. The occasion for this painting is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre that took place in Paris in August 24, 1572. The Protestants in Paris were known as the Huguenots. And while they were the minority in the group and facing a lot of conflict with the Roman Catholics of the area, they were gaining a lot of traction in Paris to the point where the queen's mother decided that they, this needed to stop. But they were gaining a lot of traction because of the, the reformation that was spreading from Germany and all throughout Europe since October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And we know from history that a lot of the countries even today, um, the reason why some of the countries even today have remained heavily Roman Catholic is due to violence. France is one of those examples. Again, the, the mother of the king of France, King Charles IX, his mother, orchestrated the assassination of the Huguenots' leaders. And after the leaders were assassinated, the mob went around killing every Protestant that they could find. And of course, with the authority of the king's mother, even the king himself could not stop the killing. This continued until October. Modern estimates for the number dead across France vary widely from, from 5,000 to 30,000 in a single day with more than 70,000 Huguenots total. After this massacre has occurred, the Pope, Gregory XIII, rewarded the French king with a golden rose and a heroic painting for getting rid of the Protestants in the land. The way the Roman Catholics distinguished themselves on this day was 
by wrapping themselves with white linen around their arm. Some Protestants, in, in, order, in, in attempts to escape the massacre, also found white linen to wrap around their arms so that they, they might be perceived by the general uh, public as a Catholic and not a Protestant. But as you can see from this picture, the Roman Catholic woman is looking greatly distressed, begging her Protestant lover to put on the armband to save himself. And this man has a choice between love and faith. But by the way he is tugging away at the armband, you can tell that he has already made a choice. Though he may be moments away from being killed for his faith, he has this look of peace, cherishing his last moments by holding the woman he loves without renouncing his conviction that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, to God alone be the glory. And while this is a fictional depiction of the event, seeing how so many, when they could have saved themselves by merely putting a white linen cloth around them, show you that many chose to die rather than renounce their faith in this conviction, which is commonly known as the, the five solas of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, to God be the glory alone. This isn't the end for the Huguenots, unfortunately. Centuries later, in, by the reign of King Louis XIV in the 17th century, we find that they are once again persecuted where about 500,000 Huguenots were killed under this king's reign. What we have in our passage this morning is a good summary of something that people were willing to die for, the gospel, the gospel. It's the good news rooted in what occurred in history. And if, if the gospel that has been proclaimed since the inception of the church was a lie, it certainly is bizarre that there were so many people who were willing to die for it. If it was a lie since the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that he rose again from the dead, and there are all these witnesses who have seen him come back from the dead, if they knew it was a lie, it is certainly bizarre that they would be willing to die without any guarantee or hope knowing that they were going to be famous or rich or popular. They died simply because they proclaimed what they had seen and they could not deny what they had seen. And later in history, as the gospel was revived, we see that many were still willing to die for it. This weekend is the anniversary of the Reformation as our brother Sam Prey. And we want to look at the good news that was rediscovered as one church historian, Steve Lawson, he phrased it. Christ and the apostles formed the church. The church fathers, these are the individuals who were disciples of the apostles, and the elders of the church, back then, within the first two, three centuries, all the elders of the church were called popes. Because that it just means fathers. So there were a lot of church fathers. There were many popes. Um, the, the church fathers conformed it. Rome deformed it. And the reformers reformed it back. So what is this gospel which people were willing to die for and prized it even over their own lives? And I'm going to summarize it in this one sentence. The gospel is that all have sinned under the law, but God revealed his righteousness apart from the law through faith in Jesus. And that sentence, I'll break it up into three points as the outline of our sermon this morning. All have sinned, number one, all have sinned under the law. Number two, but God revealed his righteousness apart from the law 
And number three, through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look of how we have all sinned under the law. See, the reason why the gospel of Jesus Christ is a really good news to us is because there exists a really bad news for us. Paul explains in verses 19 to 20, also in verse 23. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the bad news for every single one of us. We are held accountable to God for what we have done. God is a righteous God. And when we say that God is a righteous God, we're, we're saying he is the standard of what is right. He is the standard of what is good and what is holy, what is pure. So any deviation from his standard means that we are wrong. We are unholy, we are wicked, we are evil. So can you say as you compare yourself before the standard of God's holiness and his righteousness and law that you would be found innocent even by your own conscience and your own standard you are condemned? How much more so when we compare our lives to the law of God and his righteousness? And in every sin that we commit, though we offend other people, ultimately it is an offense to God. And there is no one greater than God that someone or something else could rescue you out of God's hand. Since God is the greatest being and no one's greater than him, only he can offer you that forgiveness. No one else can res rescue you from the grip of the Lord in his wrath. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you were born in the church or you came to church by a word of mouth or a friend. By nature, we are all fallen people held accountable to a holy and righteous God. This is why even David, when he was the king of Israel, he confessed that he is held accountable to God after committing adultery with Bathsheba and covering up his adultery by killing her husband. Once confronted by prophet Nathan, he confessed in Psalm 51, against you, God, you only have I sinned. See, David as a king was a man of enormous power, and no one would have had the power to stop him. No one certainly did, and no one even certainly tried, far as we can tell in the passages, when he wanted to take a married woman to his chambers. People knew what, he, I mean, I, I suspect that people knew what he was trying to do because he asked people, who is that woman that I see over there? People were like, well, that's Bathsheba. I want you to bring her to me. And so no one spoke up because everyone in this moment, you're the king. Of course you can do whatever you want to do. We're not the ones to who can tell you to stop. Yet he understood upon that confrontation, he understood that even if everyone was okay with his actions, even if the entire nation was okay with what David had done, he is still to be held accountable to God because he broke God's law even though he's a king who could have permitted to do whatever he wanted to do. This is also why Joseph, the son of Jacob, in the book of Genesis, when he fled from Potiphar's wife's temptations and seductions, he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yes, it would be of great wickedness and sin against Potiphar to have that type of relationship with his wife, but he, Joseph is thinking, ultimately, I'm going to be held accountable to God more than Potiphar. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Friends, the law of God is very clear. The offense that we have committed, the law doesn't even allow us to question whether we are right or wrong because it is clear that we are in the wrong. The le- Here's the legal wording once again in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You have no defense. So what is going to be your defense when the entire law of God speaks against you for everything that you have done? Who's going to come and stand as your defense attorney? No lawyer will, in their right mind will come and defend you when all this evidence is stacked against you. It's like in our modern-day court, they have all the evidence on paper. They recorded you on camera with the audio. They know exactly what you've done. More so with God's judgment, he knows what you have been thinking and your motivations, your intentions behind it as well. That even when you do something good, God knows the ill intent or the motivation behind it. We have no defense when we compare ourselves to the law of God. And this is what the Bible is saying. When compared to the highest law, we can't speak in any way to defend ourselves, but we will be silenced as we see the crimes laid out before us. We are far from the standard of God's law, so when we compare to his law, you and I probably won't even get a sense of the good things that we have done. There will be no, but can't you consider all the good work that I've done at least to lessen my punishment? Can't you consider all the the right things that I've done for the society or for people around me, our mouths will be silenced. So what is our hope then when we we have all sinned under the law? In verse 21, Paul says these two words, which one preacher in the past, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he once wrote, there is no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. We have all sinned under the law of God, deserving his condemnation and judgment. But now, God has revealed his righteousness apart from the law. Here's where the, we, we received the, the images and, and, the, and the beginnings of this good news, the gospel. That while we have sinned under the law, but now, God has revealed righteousness that is apart from the law. He made a way for those who have no defense. For those who have traded the glory of the immortal God for images of created things, he had given hope to those who are utterly hopeless. It is apart from the works of the law since no one can be justified by the works of the law. So in comparison, again, to God's law, we cannot say, can't you consider the good things that I've done? We often hear, or judges may even consider you in, in in our court today, to say, well, You don't deserve the full punishment because I am taking into account all the good things that you have done. But God, the offended party here, has made the way to make things right so that you can be made right with God, not by following the laws. You can't make things right with him, but he made it right with you. And this has been talked about all throughout the entire Old Testament, which is sometimes called the law and the prophets, that from Genesis to Malachi, you've seen these signs and messages of saying God is going to redeem people. God is going to save wicked, sinful people, not because they have been so good and obedient, but because of his covenant, his promise, his commitment to save. So 
even as we see these signs of God's wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, there's always a message of how God is going to redeem and save those who are far off, that he's going to draw them near. God's going to make things right with his wicked people because the wicked people will have no defense to make it right. So how did he do it? Paul tells us in verses 22 to 25, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be justified before God means to be found innocent, to be acceptable to God, to be right with him by receiving this gift of his son, Jesus Christ, where we find redemption. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you were born in the church or you came to the church by word of mouth or a friend, we all need to receive this gift in order to be found innocent and acceptable to God, to be made right with God. There is no distinction, just as all of us in our nature are condemned, all of us will be justified only through Christ. And why is it that Jesus becomes the gift of forgiveness and acceptance? Because Jesus Christ became the sacrifice or the payment of our wrongdoings. When I was younger, as a teenager living with my parents, uh, I had imagined myself at one point being like a, a, a metal guitar artist. You know, so I had like magazines with like Ozzy Osbourne and all these other heavy metal people. And, and one day I thought maybe that could be me. I know. <laughs> Look at me. Like, yeah, he's a big metal guy. So I, I went online and found this deal where I would get subscriptions to guitar magazines. I, I put in my credit card information that my parents uh, unwisely gave to me. I put in my social security number because it was this whole subscription thing that I was sub sub subscribing to, not realizing that I had to pay after this free trial was over. That's how they get you. Lock you in with the free trial and they don't tell you when you need to cancel it, right? So you start paying for things that you didn't want to pay for. Uh, but, but I fell into that. And then the magazines just kept coming. I thought I was only getting three months of free magazines, but then six months later, I was getting more. Eight months later, I was getting more. A year later, I got one, and then it just stopped. I was like, okay, well, I think, I think that this was the free trial. I got a pretty good deal out of it. I got 12 magazines about guitar and musicians. Good stuff. And then once the magazine stopped, the letters from the company started flowing in saying, hey, you owe us money for those six, seven, eight months. <laughs> and then, of course, the third letter came with that big red stamp that said, final notice. So what did I do as a young teenager? I hid it in my room and hoped that, well, if I don't respond, they don't know that I actually received it, and maybe they'll just forget about me. Of course, living with my parents as a young teenager, I didn't clean my room. My mom did. And so upon cleaning my room, she found this letter with the big red stamp asking, what is this? And I confessed. I subscribed to magazines, guitar magazines, and apparently I have to pay for them. But, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I'm hoping they'll just forget about me. Uh, of course, the, the, that very letter, right, with the big stamp, uh, what it said, and I'm paraphrasing, it said, pay up or we're coming after you, right? <laughs> pay up or we're coming after you. We have your social security number, so it's going to affect your credit. Pay up or we're coming after you. So when my mom found the letter, 
was like, well, uh, I don't know what to do. I, I'm hoping this is just going to go away. But my parents, knowing what was going to happen to me, they decided to simply pay my debt. And I was free to go. No one from the guitar magazine was coming after me anymore because I owe them nothing. And yet, how much greater is our debt to God that the only acceptable price is giving up our lives for the wages of sin is death. Yet God paid the price on our behalf through his son, that the blood and the life of his son, the righteous, holy one, only he, his payment and his sacrifice was enough to pardon us from the guilt that we have incurred. You and I can be made right with God, not by following laws, but because God paid our guilt price through his son, we can be made right with God. And note here that salvation is from God and it is by God. It's a free gift given to guilty people. And once we realize this gift which we have received of how Christ paid the price and we're simply a recipient of that work he has accomplished, we can have such assurance and confidence in our relationship with God that we can echo the very words that Jonathan Edwards has once spoken. He said, the godly man is happy in whatever circumstances he is placed because of the spiritual privileges and advantages, joys and sanctifications he actually enjoys while in this life. He says you can experience great happiness in this life. You don't have to wait for heaven. That in this life, godly man experiences such happiness. And he continues, how great a happiness must it be to a man to have all his sins pardoned and to stand guilty of nothing in God's presence, to be washed clean from all his pollutions, to have the great and eternal and almighty Jehovah who rules and governs the whole universe and does whatever he pleases in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, reconciled to him and perfectly at peace with him. That despite our circumstances, despite the confusions and the pains that we may go through, and, the, and, the, and the, the various things that we endure in this world, that we can still say, I am happy no matter what's going on, whether it be something that happened in my life or the sickness that we suffer through, because I have the creator of the universe looking upon me, not with judgment or cursing, but at peace with him. That I have the very one who has control of every single molecule in this world and says to me, Peace be to you, that there is no wrong or error or anger, but peace with this God. The godly man is happy in whatever circumstances he is placed in this life. Once we grasp and remember that the very one who has control of all things and who has every right to condemn every single one of us says, peace to you. Or as the Apostle Paul would say later on the, in this letter of Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. No one can condemn us because Christ paid the price for us. Be it be a devil or your inner voice condemning you. If you are in Christ, you can say those voices and those words are lies because Christ died for me. It is God who justifies, not my good works, 
not my community. It is God who justifies. So even apart from certain affirmations about me, I can be confident that if I truly believe in Jesus, I am justified in Christ. So then how do we receive this gift which God has accomplished? Through faith in Jesus Christ. All have sinned under the law, but God has revealed his righteousness apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. As we see in verses 22 and 24 and 25, this righteousness of God, it is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God, by his grace, has made the way, and faith is the hand that reaches out to receive the gift which God has given. Faith is the assurance, the confidence that Jesus really lived the perfect life on our behalf and died the death that we deserve in our place and that he is truly enough to satisfy the wrath of God against all offenses that we have committed. Again, here the passage tells us God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. It's not that the father was angry and thinking, I need to punish these people, I need to destroy these people, and Jesus the son is saying, would you be merciful? I will go and spare them. I will go and die on their behalf. No, the text tells us that it was the will of God with all the persons in the Trinity to save people. When Martin Luther was reading and reflecting on Romans 1 through 3, he said, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressible sweet and greater love. This passage in Paul became for me a gateway to heaven. Before Martin Luther really studied and, and, and understood the, the scriptures, uh, especially the passage that we're covering this morning, he was filled with such anger whenever he thought about the righteousness of God, the standard of God's morality, the standard of goodness and justice and mercy and love. Every time he thought about who God is, he knew that all these attributes of God are ultimately to condemn him. I am supposed to reach that standard. I will never be able to reach that standard. But he tried. Martin Luther was a very dedicated priest and a monk. He would literally whip himself and cause pain, induce pain upon his own body to show God, can't you see how remorseful I am? Can't you see how much I'm sorry for the things that I've done? Will you be satisfied with me now? And he would whip himself. He would intentionally fast days on end and, and, and cause pain in his hunger. He would uh, intentionally stay awake and not fall asleep just to feel that pain and endure and, and make his life miserable to, to show some sort of gift to God saying, aren't I sincere enough for you now? Haven't I done enough for you to accept me and receive me? Why do I still feel like you are against me despite all the things that I have done in your name? And when he went to Rome as a priest, uh, he would even walk on the steps of Rome on his knees because that's what the church told him. You need to pay up your penance and your due diligence. And then you have less time in purgatory. You will have, you will have a faster access to heaven. 
that is not just simply a faith in Christ, but you need to do these things as the church has dictated to you in order for you to be truly righteous before God, justified of all your wrongdoings. And in the midst of that life, Paul hated the idea that God is a righteous God because every single attribute of God was a condemnation to him. And yet, once he realized that God makes us right in Christ Jesus through faith, he didn't need to, he, he knew that he didn't need to be afraid anymore for he was a recipient of God's love. If you're here this morning and, and you are still searching, that, that you are not a, a, a professing believer, I am, I am really glad that you have decided to join us today. And I believe that God has certainly led you here as, as he is, again, in control of all things. And so I would ask of you, if, if you are here this morning and, and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, that you would uh, examine and ask yourself this question. Let, let me just pretend, and, and you and I pretend that everything that I said is true. That this God of the entire universe created all things and that you have committed grave errors against him. That one day you are going to have to stand before him and make an account for all the wrongs that you have done. But if this God has made the way to forgive you for your sins and all your errors, and you don't have to do anything but simply to trust in what his son has accomplished, why wouldn't you believe? If that's all that it takes for you to simply profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, why wouldn't you take that if that is truly a way to salvation? And as Christians, we certainly don't want you to face the eternal consequences of rejecting this gospel message. If I am wrong in the gospel, then everything I say to you is just another person speaking an opinion. And it will have no effect on you whatsoever. But if I'm right in what has been proclaimed in the scriptures, then there are truly eternal consequences that you're going to have to face. And as a church, as a Christian, I hope that you will be able to avoid and, and flee from such misery and judgment. That you would turn away from your sin and turn to the Savior who is offering forgiveness the one that we have offended says, come to me and I can forgive you. That I sent my son to die for my people. If you would come and trust in me, there is forgiveness and redemption for you. So I beg and plea that you would consider the gospel message. And that you would turn away from your selfish or your, or your ideologies that are contrary to the gospel. And examine Christ and what he has accomplished. See, throughout history... From those who have witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, the Bible tells us there were more than 500 people who saw Jesus not only get crucified on the cross, but walking around after the crucifixion for 40 days, teaching and ministering. And more than 500 people seeing Jesus going up to heaven on a cloud. Why would they be tortured and die for something if they knew it was a lie? And yet, not a single person in the first century Christianity, our first century of the church, denied the resurrection. Not a single person denied the ascension because they couldn't deny what they saw. They've never seen a truly dead person come back to life before. They've never seen a person go up into heaven before. They couldn't deny it because that's what they saw. If they knew it was a lie, it would certainly be bizarre that they would live this lie, even if they were to be tortured and killed for it. 
And yet we see that effect even now, where many even today are choosing to die for the gospel rather than renounce the gospel, to the point where we know the numbers. More Christians have been martyred in the 21st century than the entire 20 centuries combined, that more and more believers, our brothers and sisters in faith, are willing to lay their lives down and forfeit their lives here in this world rather than renounce Christ and his gospel. It is because of what the gospel offers that people are willing to lay down their lives for it rather than renounce it. You know, during the Reformation era, the early 16th century, many Protestants were being persecuted and killed for their faith by the Roman Catholic Church because a lot of the things that they had learned from the Catholic Church were in contrary to what they see in Scripture, that once these Roman Catholic priests started examining the Bible for themselves, they're speaking against the papacy. They're speaking against the way that the Roman Catholics have governed and, and controlled people in the way they believed or acted. And for many of them, all, all they needed to do to spare their lives was simply recant. Just deny the things that you have taught. Just say you are wrong and you will live. You won't be prosecuted. You'll be free. But they couldn't deny the gospel because the gospel was too precious and too true. And to deny it would be to renounce God himself and curse their souls. They died with confidence in Christ and the gospel message because they realized that death in Christ is life everlasting. No matter how contrary it was to the powerhouse of the Roman Catholic Church, that death in Christ would surely be life everlasting. And so as, as I conclude the sermon this morning, I want to share with you some of the examples of what people were able to do because they truly firmly believed in this gospel message. People like John Wycliffe of England in the 14th century, he's uh, really known for being the first person to translate the New Testament from Latin to English, which was illegal to do back then. It was even illegal for people to own a Bible, and it was even to the point where priests themselves did not have, a, did not have access to Bibles. And yet, John Wycliffe uh, was the first person who translated the Bible from Latin to English. Back then, Rome only allowed services to be conducted in Latin and not in the common speech. In fact, this didn't change in the Roman Catholic Church until the Second Vatican Council in 1964. So if you've been attending church mass before 1964, everything would be in Latin. You would have no idea what was being said. But Wycliffe understood that people need to know this message because people would go to church, they wouldn't be singing. They would only hear a choir sing in a language that they do not know. They don't know what the preacher is saying because it's all in Latin. And so they just assume, okay, my job is here to listen, pay my money of, of either indulgence and offering, and then go home and think I have access to heaven now. But Wycliffe knew that people needed to hear the gospel so that they can know who Jesus is. And, and once he translated the Bible from Latin, or really the New Testament from Latin to English, singers took his translation and, and they started singing the gospel out into the streets so that people everywhere and anywhere who could understand English would finally hear the gospel that they can understand. John Huss, a few decades after John Wycliffe, he was a Roman Catholic priest in Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. Uh, he taught the Bible in the common tongue and he preached righteousness by faith. 
as a result of this teaching and his constant uh, desire to let people know, he was excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church five times until eventually toward, toward the 40s of his life, he was captured by the guards and he was burned alive on a stake. But yet it was said that while he was on the stake being burned alive for 8 to 12 minutes, he would be singing. Singing the Psalms while the fires engulfed his flesh. Because people discovered the gospel through reforming the church and going back to the scriptures. Martin Luther brought congregational singing back into the church. He and his wife wrote songs together at church and at home. Because again, church services before them were all just you sitting and listening and just simply being a passive attendee. But yet Martin Luther, as he examined the scriptures of God's commanding us to sing, he wrote songs in German and so that people who attend in, in German can sing the songs. And so if you are thankful that we are a church that sings, you can credit it to people like Martin Luther who stood against the, the powerful Roman Catholic Church and, and the German Empire to say we're going to sing with the language that is given to us to understand. Because of the gospel, John Calvin pioneered the very things that we treasure in this democratic society. That Calvin is credit for a lot of the things that we treasure in democracy, of the, of the balance of power, fighting for human rights, and even seeking to see that our governing systems change for the better. That we do not rely upon a single king or, a, or, or any sort of monarch, but that every single human being has inheritable rights. That comes from a reformer of the church. And because of the gospel, you and I are called into a relationship with God. When Rome, through its power in the past history, was all its regulations to control people and making, making Christianity into this religion, the gospel reminds us that God has called us into a relationship to be his adopted sons and daughters. The reformers went back to the covenant of God, the commitment that he makes to his people. And so we, as a result of that, can pray to God, can seek him personally, and know that we are loved by him. Certainly the current Roman Catholic Church is not the Roman Catholic that was during the Reformation era, but the current Roman Catholic Church wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't for the Protestant reformers. And yet there's still many, many problems that we see in the Roman Catholic Church today that we hope will be addressed. But because of what the gospel reveals, we understand this relationship that we have with him and confidence in him. Just like what Jonathan Edwards is saying, that we can be happy in all circumstances. Just like how we see in the reformers of the past being so confident, being so brave, and being so loving. Because they firmly believe, which I hope you and I can firmly proclaim, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in scripture alone, to God alone be the glory. What person could destroy you? What person could fill you with fear when you have such confidence in God like that? And I hope for all of us this weekend, uh, as, as we remember that, that we have many saints before us who have gone before us, they stood against tyranny and in powerful forces and stood up to what is true and good stood up with the gospel of jesus because they firmly believed in these things which you and i in this church proclaim let's pray together father we thank you god 
that in all circumstances of life, we can be confident that in Christ you are our God and we are your people. And I pray that we may be certain that you, O Lord, have given us salvation by your grace, through the faith that trusts in you, by the work of Jesus and what he has accomplished alone. All of this we recognize in the scriptures, not by the traditions made by man, but in the word of God given to us. And so I pray, Father, that all of us will live in obedience to your word and standing with, with courage and love so that you may receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.